When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Eye on Foxborough, the premier podcast for all things New England Patriots. Brought to you by Mass Live. Welcome to Mass Live's Eye on Foxborough podcast. I'm Karen Garigian. Chris Mason is joining me as we welcome ESPN senior writer Seth Wickersham. Uh, He does quite a bit of enterprise and investigative work on the NFL. Uh, His most recent uh, investigative piece uh, dropped the day after uh, Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft uh, went their separate ways. Uh, It's entitled... It was the Patriot way until it wasn't. Hi, Seth. How are you? Great. How are you guys? Uh, uh, We're good. Uh, It's been an interesting week and a half, to say the least, but... uh, No doubt. Kind of always interesting. Uh, I was curious how long uh, this piece, you know, how long it took. I mean, was it just over the course of the year, a couple years? What was the the period of time that you had kind of worked on putting it together? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. I think that like whenever you do stories, you know, I I have kind of a unique job at ESPN where sometimes, you know, my job is to go report a story that my editors, you know, want to learn more about whatever it might be. Other times, you know, the job is to kind of just keep tabs on things and monitor situations as they're ongoing um that mostly comes into play when i do stuff around the owners or the league office um but like when don van out and i did a couple big stories last year on dan snyder and that situation but um with the patriots i think that all during the season i was kind of just monitoring things because it just looked like a very real chance that this was going to be belichick's last last year there and i would say that um along with the people who helped me with the story, Don Van Atta and Ray Thompson, we really started um, digging into it in, in mid-December. I think that at that point it was obvious. I think that Belichick wasn't going to come back. I think that he knew that he, he wasn't going to come back. And in fact, I think he didn't want to because of how he felt um, his program had, had been eroded. And um, that's really when I think we tried to, figure out all that we could about what was going on and and how it came to be. The Patriots seem to be in terms of you, the gift that keeps giving. I mean, (laughs) you've you've written, you've written a book. Uh, It's better feared. Uh, You had another piece that, that came out. Have you found is the type of dysfunction that you keep writing about uh, in back seeing uh, things that go on. Do you find that unique to NFL teams or is it just something given, you know, the, the 
you know, having three people, Robert Kraft, Bill Belichick, and Tom Brady uh, prior to the last four years, three huge egos uh, together, to, you know, and accomplished people. So I would separate it a little bit. I actually don't think whatever's happened in New England, you know, especially since things started to get a little rocky there, maybe during the 2017 season, I actually wouldn't classify it as dysfunction at all. I think that, you know, when I write about the Cleveland Browns, you know, that's dysfunction. I think that like what you have is three men who are in a professional and cultural thin air who have pushed the bounds of achievement and ego and endurance and, um, you know, what's possible in the NFL. And so because we were watching something unprecedented, everything about it to me was just interesting. How they were able to achieve that greatness, how they were able to keep it together for as long as they did, what the costs of it were, and, you know, how it slowly came undone, which, of course, the only way it was going to come undone was from within. And I think that's what happened when Tom Brady decided to leave. I think that that's what happened, um, you know, this past year. And so I think that like, I guess they're the keep the, the, the gift that keeps on giving for all of us, but like, you know, I never looked at them like you would look at, you know, the stuff that goes on in some of these teams that I've written about or certain situations around the league if anything, what they did was so exceptional, that's what made it interesting to me. Why, if you were to put your finger on something, what, what do you think, how were they able to keep it together so long? Or what, what was the ingredient? Was it just winning? Or are they all kind of, I think you wrote, wrote it, that they all kind of needed each other? I think that they realized what was special. Like... This is this is me. I, I never had this in reporting, but one thing I would love to know mm. is if in the early part of the dynasty, I mean, maybe you guys know, maybe it's been asked, and I just I never I never saw an answer or saw any of this. But I would love to know if if Belichick ever talked with Brady about the perils of celebrity. And you know, you guys remember, I mean, we were all there when you know the dynasty really took off, you know, the tuck rule game and like, I remember, you know, I graduated from college the same year as Brady and ESPN magazine sent me up to Foxborough back when they played in that high school stadium to to write about, you know, this guy who was filling in for Drew Bledsoe and was doing a very admirable job. At the time, nobody even knew, except for maybe Bill Belichick, that, you know, he was probably going to finish the season. Um, I remember he saw Gillette Stadium where we were leaving the Patriots Pro Shop after we had chatted for a while, and um, Brady had a a gray jumpsuit on and his back, he had a backpack. He looked like a college student. And he, um, it was full of beer because he had just lost the Michigan, Michigan state, uh, a bet in the Michigan, Michigan state game. And he was walking past the, the construction of Gillette stadium. And he was like, man, I hope I get to play there. And it's so crazy to think about nowadays that, you know, at that time, nobody knew, but within a couple months, I mean, his life had changed forever. You know, he, was one of the most famous people in America. He was on the cover of People magazine. He was dating, you know, one of the most famous actresses at the time. And I wonder if Belichick ever sat down with him in those meetings that they had in those years, because Bill was just so invested in helping Brady develop. Um, 
just the perils of celebrity and all of the ways that it can derail something. And I think that they just recognize they were after the same thing. Um, there's that famous line that begins that, you know, one of the greatest magazine stories ever was Richard Ben Kramer when he wrote about Ted Williams. And the first line in it is, few men try for best ever. And Bill Belichick and Tom Brady were two of those men who were really trying for best ever. And I think that that's what, I think that that desire, realizing early on that if they're measured by championships, they have a chance to do something incredibly special that nobody is in the realm of, of touching. I think that that's what kept them together. And then I, I do think that, I mean, and you guys can speak to this as well as I can, but I do think that about halfway through the dynasty, if you look at that 20 year run, um, you know, they had plateaued at the highest level and they were losing playoff games and they were losing Super Bowls by, you know, inches in the final minute. And frustrations begin to kick in. I think that Robert Kraft started to take more of a role in negotiating Tom Brady's contracts. Um, you know, Belichick eventually drafted, you know, a guy who he thought was going to replace Tom Brady and was very blunt about why he did it. And, um, and I think that Brady started looking outside of the building for answers of how to get just a little bit better so that instead of that pass that went through Wes Welker's fingertips, at the end of the Super Bowl against the Giants, you know, that pass is two inches closer and Welker catches it and they win that game. And obviously they were able to recreate that magic again. And then I think that really in 2017 is when, um, you know, on the host of levels, things really started to get tough and Robert Kraft was really doing what he could to hold it together as long as he could. Yeah. Uh, Chris, do you want to jump in <laughs> before I hog him to myself here? <laughs> sure. Um, I actually wanted to ask you something a little more specific about the story that just dropped. And that was um, mm -hmm. the Mac Jones bit was really interesting mm -hmm. to me. About You had Bill raising the idea of trading him last off season before the season started and the crafts essentially wanting to see um, what he could do with Bill O'Brien first. Do you have any sense of like how far those trade talks advanced? Was that just like a cutting room floor type thing where they're hashing it out there? Or did Bill have a sense of like the return? Do you know like how far those well, talks advanced? Yeah, I don't know exactly how far they advanced. I, I do know that teams were interested. I do know that obviously I think that it was pro football talk last spring that actually reported that they were shopping Mac Jones. Like, I don't know if they were shopping them. That's, that's his reporting, but like, um, you know, I think that like, look, he wasn't coming off a great season and he was really one of the best rookie quarterbacks, if not the best rookie quarterback as a rookie under Josh McDaniels. And I think the ownership wanted to see what he could do with some more different players around him and a chance, you know, with, you know, Bill O'Brien probably is the best head coach to come out of the New England system under Belichick, had the most success, had done it with a lot of different quarterbacks down in Houston. And so um, obviously if Bill had wanted to trade him, that's his contractual right to do so. But I think that he decided to kind of like acquiesce a little bit and not pursue it maybe as far as he could have. But I do think that there was some teams that were interested in, in Mac Jones. Um. You mentioned, um, you know, Robert Kraft basically writing into Gerard Mayo's contract or basically letting him know, letting everyone know that Gerard was going to be the heir to, uh, to Bill Belichick. 
And that in itself, you know, caused some unrest uh, in the in the building, you know, Belichick people, you know, I'm curious, you bring up uh, Mike Vrabel's name and that there were, you know, rumblings about the Patriots perhaps going after after him. Did that make sense, given they had already kind of promised it to Gerard? And, and how did that fall out? Yeah, I think that it was probably like a fanciful notion, but I think that the crafts did talk to confidants about, you know, what if Vrabel's available? And it turned out that things were much worse in the Tennessee Titans building than really any of us knew. Um, a lot of reporting has come out about that since then. But I think that what made this season unique, I think, was that because of the way that they entered the season, um, it felt at times that there was like three head coaches <laughs> in the building and two of them were empowered by ownership. Obviously everyone knows that Bill O'Brien has a great relationship with the crafts. It is Belichick's decision to hire him. But I think that even late last season, so the end of 2022, there was, you know, reporting that the crafts would like to bring in Bill O'Brien and he could be brought, he was a candidate that could replace that kind of, patchwork system that Belichick had put together with Matt Patricia and Joe Judge. And when Billy Yo came into the building, he made it clear that, look, it was his job to fix the offense and made it very clear that he, you know, wanted autonomy in doing that. And then you had Gerard, who contractually knew that he um, was the heir apparent. Robert Kraft had said at the league meetings in March that he was the heir apparent. And really quick, I just have a hard time saying the heir apparent without thinking about that Sopranos line from Christopher when he says that, you know, he, he says it's the heir apparent. So <laughs> I, I if I slip up and I say it that way, that's why, you know, the Jackie Jr. was the heir apparent. But um, I think that the, the dynamic just felt weird. And as the season went on and the Patriots, you know, they started one in five. They had that horrific two-week stretch where they just got blown out by the Saints and the Cowboys. Yeah. Um, it just, I think the dynamic in the building was different and, you know, Belichick told people that he felt like the culture that he had built had been eroded as a result of some of these things and others. You also project, project and portray, uh, Jonathan Kraft, uh, who's the president of the team, uh, aside Robert is kind of lurking in the shadows, uh, well, What's the perception of him around the building and, and what, you know, is he talk about hair apparent? Uh, is, he, <laughs> is he, is he taking over anytime soon for Robert? I don't know. You know. That's, that's their decision. I think that, you know, we had an anecdote in the story um, about Jonathan Kraft at a meeting at, at, towards the end of, of the 2022 season and someone brought up the Patriots in their record and, and, and Jonathan said, you know, he's done speaking of Belichick, he's got to go. And, you know, he denied saying that, um, you know, when I, when I brought it up, but um, you know, the, the people who heard it, heard it firsthand. And I think that the relationship between Robert Kraft and Bill Belichick is very unique. Um, Robert has, has not been shy over the years publicly talking about um you know, the difficulties in managing a personality like Bill Belichick and privately 
Um, I've reported in others, you know, the biggest bleeping a-hole in my life, um, you know, mocking him um, at certain moments, you know, I had in my book where he report, you know, where he said that, you know, Belichick was an, was an idiot savant. And I, and I gave him this opportunity when he traded for him back in 2000. And so I think that, and then you have Jonathan, who I think is protective of his father's life and legacy, frustrated with the way that he's treated at times, especially by the head coach, the former head coach. And, um, you know, I think that Jonathan, had been talking to people in the building, you know, why Bill was making certain decisions. Robin Glazer, I think, did that also. And I think that some of the staff felt torn. I think that they felt like the loyalty to the head coach who ran football operations and also to ownership who was kind of making clear that, you know, things might be different soon in the building. And so, um, you know, does that mean that Jonathan is, is taking over football operations? I have no idea. I do think that there's a case to be made. You know, we, we often recoil when we hear about ownership or siblings of ownership being involved in football matters. And usually that's a smart thing to do to recoil. But like if you're Jonathan Kraft and you've had a front row, he's a very smart guy, had a front row seat to this dynasty, all of the ways that all the things that Belichick has learned over the years that um, only a few people we're privy enough to have access to and you take all of that knowledge and now you have a situation where Gerard Mayo said yesterday, you know, we're looking to be a little bit more collaborative. Um, if you have a situation like that, you know, team president, maybe he should have more influence over football matters because um, you can find people who have spent their life scouting and you can find people who have spent their life coaching um, it's rare that you can take a situation where someone's had that sort of insight into the game's greatest dynasty of the Super Bowl era and have a chance to maybe evolve it to the next phase, whatever that is. Mm. Chris, do you have any sense of like who might be running football ops a year from now where Robert Kraft was kind of asked about that <laughs> yesterday and was, I mean, you were listening to the same answer where he's pretty wishy-washy where he said like short term, we'd like it to be collaborative long term we, we're going to have somebody in place but then was like that's a great question <laughs> and it's like okay there was <laughs> an answer there right do you have any sense yeah. of this football operations like hierarchy could be a year from now no do you guys <laughs> no well, we're, we're <laughs> yeah we're in the dark we've got, we've got theories we've got a lot of theories but what, what theory what theories do you have well would you here's one uh, I think they're kind of in a bit of limbo, not knowing what is going to happen with Belichick, where he's going to go and who's going to go with him. Right. Because there's several front office people, uh, Matt Crow, perhaps even Elliot Wolf. Uh, there's several people on the coaching staff who are probably just waiting to see where Belichick goes. And then the, you know, the Patriots are going to have to react after that fact, I, I'm thinking, I'm guessing. No, and I think that's also part of the reason why yesterday Robert isn't like naming anyone or saying anything like that. Because if he says something like, oh, we really like Macro and Elliot Wolf, and then they leave to join Bill in Atlanta later this week, it's, it yeah. looks like, <laughs> right? So it's very like, very wishy-washy yeah. with it. But mm -hmm. um, 
One other you, the, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's interesting the efficiency with which the team moved on from Bill Belichick. I mean, name is a successor less than twenty four hours after um, he was gone officially, and you know, I, I think that the way that yesterday's press conference went, I think that it had to go that way in certain aspects, and I also think that there was people, especially with Belichick loyalties who, you know, were pretty upset after that press conference, who kind of felt that, you know, there were several subtle shots taken at him, whether it's the Gerard Mayo talking about the siloed atmosphere, being more collaborative, whatever it might be, you know, but that said, things do have to change and they have to do it differently. They don't have the same situation and you're not going to have, you know, Gerard Mayo's 37 years old. He's a first time head coach. He's got a lot of upside, um, but he's not. It's not the same situation as Bill Belichick when he was traded for by the Patriots, where he had been a head coach and had this window. Um, you know, had it, it's everything is just different, and so I think that um, they both had to draw a line and and sort of talk about how things were going to be different, even if they couldn't quite define it. Right, and yeah. I think both those things can be true. Right, when you're talking about like obviously the most successful run of all time, no doubt about that. But at this point, there are still relationships that need to be rebuilt. Like Gerard said, you know, there there's truth in both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking, um, I was going to just uh, jump in. Speaking of Mayo, uh, you, you depicted a scene with him bringing base a baseball bat to meetings. <laughs> what, what what what's behind that, or what was you know what what was ultimately the point of that? Well, it's not the end of the world that he had it. It was just that I think that it reinforced a perception. I, I think Greg Bedard had reported that he was rubbing people the wrong way as the season went on. And I think that it reinforced a perception, going back to what I said, that like just the dynamic was different. And I think that Bill's authority throughout his entire run among the coaching staff has been unquestioned. I mean, he says something, that's the end of it. I mean, you know, he comes from the Naval Academy. He has a great appreciation for military history. Like when Bill Parcells was the head coach, he could debate Bill Parcells all he wanted. But when Parcells made a call, Belichick respected that. And he did what the order was. And I think that there was just a sense, again, that the staff was a little divided, a little pulled apart. And it was just a different dynamic as the season went on. Um, You know, Belichick would usually give staff studies or projects to do. Um, preparing for free agency or the draft, you know, this season, it wasn't like that. He didn't do that. And I think that by mid December, he knew that it was over. I think that he didn't want to be there anymore. um, After the way that the season had gone and the way that he felt he was treated and the way that, you know, his job speculation had been dangled all year with a lot of silence from ownership. And, um, uh, you know, when they said it was a, a mutual parting, I think that that was a pretty accurate phrase. Hmm. Just an FYI, it's since about the the ba- the baseball bat thing. I, I believe Tom Curran reported it was one of those miniature <laughs> miniature bats <or> whatever. <laughs> so I didn't say, yeah, I mean, you know, Tom, I, I don't know what he reported, but like I didn't report that he was threatening people. I just think they they thought it was like just a different situation that was a little atypical going back when you look at like the 24 year run that Belichick had there again, the dynamic was a little atypical and they saw that sort of atmosphere and the disconnect um, embodied in, in harmless moments, but moments that were a little revealing. 
Yeah. Couple quick questions before we, we close out. Do you think it was important for the Patriots whenever they did part with Belichick to bring in someone who was sort of polar opposite of him or That's different a, or yeah. different? Yeah. It's so interesting how every owner does that, right? They all do it. It's like they talk about the player's coach versus the disciplinarian or whatever it might be. And um, even Belichick was the, you know, when they fired or when Parcells left and they brought in Pete Carroll, Pete Carroll's a different guy. You know, he used to have his basketball in the hallways and dribbling his basketball between, you know, meetings at, you know, when he was the Patriots coach. And then when he's let go, they bring in Belichick who, you know, again, is a different type of coach than Pete Carroll. Yeah. And I think that Mayo is different, first of all, in age. Like, you know, I think that's the thing that stands out the most more than like style, because we don't truly know Gerard's style yet. Obviously, we got a glimpse of it in the press conference. He definitely handles things a little bit less formally than Belichick did, but that's okay. Um, but, I, I, you know, I think that when you're going from someone who would will be 72 years old when this season started, um, and, you know, has run, developed his own program and run it very successfully with different inputs and different adjustments, but the basics of the program have kind of remained the same over the years. I think that bringing in a 37-year-old coach um, who's going to bring in, who's going to have different dynamics in the way that he wants the program run and the way that ownership wants it run, I think that's the big opposite. So, yeah, I think you're you're dead on with that one. Chris, did you have a final question? If you were a betting man, where does Bill Belichick land? <laughs> oh, I just don't bet on anything. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, it really looks like it's probably going to be Atlanta. You know, right now it's Thursday morning. Um, yep. I really want to see Dallas, though. Me too. I really wanted to see. I really wanted to see that star on a cutoff hoodie and. You know, he talked about that in the buildings, had a good relationship with the Jones family, and it would be a way to, you know, tweak craft a little bit if, mm -hmm. if he ended up going to Dallas. And I really wanted to see him take – to me, Dallas was a perfect situation because they have a talented roster, but they don't have a team. Yeah. And if there's anything that he has just proven to have been able to do better than anybody in modern history, it's take a collection of – you know, players and turn them into a team and, you know, taking a situation like that where they, they're, they can win 12 games a year, but they can't advance in the playoffs to the Super Bowl, get them over the hump, man, I really want to see that. And if he ends up in Atlanta, a little bit like Brady, it's a very uniconic yeah. destination for an icon, <laughs> but, but like a division his, his, like cakewalk to a title and, and like, yeah, catch Shula there. Yeah, it's a little bit, I think that makes a little sense, bit more. But... Yeah, a little bit more of a rebuild there. But you know, it's interesting to me how I think Brady's come out publicly and he said that when he became a free agent, he was expecting to have like you know twenty, twenty three teams buying for him, right? You know, and it turned out it was very few. And I'm just maybe I shouldn't be shocked because Belichick's seventy one years old, yeah. but man, he just he you think about all the openings that have come open and you know most teams have didn't even really open the door for him I mean they set up structures already to have you know younger GMs come in or whatever it is and he really doesn't have the 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 options that I thought that he would have finally do you think it's even 
remotely possible that Jerry Jones might have kicked the tires with Belichick, tested the waters. They might have had a conversation before. Ultimately, Jerry shocked everyone uh, yesterday by saying he's sticking yeah. with Mike McCarthy. And maybe they just couldn't, you know, come to a common place where Jerry would pull the trigger. I don't know. I think that Belichick and Jerry Jones would have worked fine together, to be honest with you. <laughs> like yeah. Bill's, Bill, I, I think they would have worked fine together. But I do think that, and this is kind of based on people who have talked to Jerry Jones about his philosophy. I, I just don't know if he values coaches, you know, at the way that you might have to, if you're bringing in someone like Bill Belichick, I think that clearly they know how to assemble a really talented roster. And, um, you, you know, uh, in my opinion, it's just obvious that Mike McCarthy is a very good head coach. Um, but, you know, he has shown no ability to have the answers for getting past San Francisco when it matters most. And if you're Jerry Jones and you're looking and you've got that team and you need to clear hurdles, both in the conference before you even get to the Super Bowl, um, you know, that's Belichick's specialty. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't have any insight into why he decided to, to stay with McCarthy and not make a run at Bill would have been complicated because of various, you know, rules in place. And, you know, maybe he just saw the path of least resistance, but um, I just don't know if like he thinks that a coach of Belichick stature is maybe as valuable as, as some other franchises do. Well, we're going to see how valuable Gerard Mayo is uh, in the coming years and how they put it all together. Seth, I thank you very much for taking the time to join us on the podcast. Great to see you guys. Thank you. Thanks, man. This has been Ion Foxborough, brought to you by Mass Live.